0: This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Well, I said Martin Luther... Began chapter 5 at verse 14 of chapter 4. Why? Well, continue reading. Every high priest is elected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. You find the exact same wording in chapter 8. We'll get to that eventually. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Now, what is he going to all that? What is he trying to say? Here, in one word, it deals with the Day of Atonement. You find, about, find the reference in Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, all spelled out for you. That he is, the High Priest had to enter the Holy of Holies, with blood, of a bull. And that is sprinkle the blood for his own cleanliness to be cleansed from sin and his family members to be cleansed from sin. And then he would leave. And then he would take the blood of a goat and enter the second time and sprinkle the blood for the people of Israel that their sins might be covered. So twice but note how he puts it. He says, Since he himself is subject to weakness. There's something else that I have to point out before we go on. In verse 5, he says, He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. And that refers to people who sin passively. We're going to talk about that in chapter 6. And again in chapter 10 where we read about the sin against the Holy Spirit. Those who sin against the Holy Spirit sin actively. I still remember way, way back in 1950 how this Danish immigrant boy in the heat of summer raised his fist to heaven and Cursed God because it was too hot. And I stood there. How does he dare? Well, you know the last words of Timothy McVeigh. Did you not read them and hear them? The poem of William Arthur Henley, written in 1875, titled Invictus, means. Unconquered. In the last couple of lines, goes something like this It matters not how full this late, how charged with punishment this scroll. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. And then he died. And you hear and shudder and say, Thank you, Lord for saving me, and that I'm not in the shoes of Timothy McVeigh. That's active sinning, you see? Now read the text once more. To deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. Passive sinning. And you and I fall in that category. Yes. Uh, Dr. Kistemarker, in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement was... For only unintentional sins, or did it cover intentional sins? No, it doesn't cover intentional sins. I'm glad that you asked the question. That yes, okay. In the Old Testament, is there a distinction made about voluntary and involuntary sins? Turn with me to Numbers chapter 30. I hope I'm right on target. No, that's not it. Beginning to read of verse 22. Now if you unintentionally fail to keep any of these commands the Lord gave Moses, any of the Lord's commands to you through him from the day of the Lord gave them to you, and continuing through the generations to come, and if this is done unintentionally, note the wording, without the community being aware of it, then the whole community is to offer a young bull for a burnt offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord along with its prescribed grain offering, drink offering, and a male goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement for the whole Israelite community and they will be forgiven." For it was not intentional. And they have brought to the Lord for their wrong an offering made by fire and a sin offering. The whole Israelite community and the aliens living among them will be forgiven because all the people were involved in the unintentional wrong. Now, now the second part. Verse 27. But if just one person sins unintentionally, he must bring a... Okay, drop down to verse 30 verse 30 but anyone who sins defiantly whether native born or alien blasphemes the lord and that person must be cut off from his people because he has despised the lord's word broken his commands that person must surely be cut off his guilt remains on him there you have the answer okay good i continue <coughs> In verse 4, I read, No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God. Hebrews 5, 4. Just as Aaron was. Here's an aside. Way back in 1971, I joined the faculty, and the president of the seminary was the Reverend Samuel Patterson and all the new students gathered in chapel and he welcomed them warmly glad to have you on campus happy to see you here may the Lord bless you and on and on oh he thought right at home said now nah, I know and then when he was finished he said but unless the Lord has called you we don't want you here and that sank in I had a student and I won't mention his name but he was a good student straight A he had been an engineer in New Orleans and at the end of the semester he came to me and said Dr. K I'm going back to New Orleans to be an engineer and I said why Bob and he said the Lord has not called me I don't feel the call at all. I'm going back to being an engineer. And I said, Bob, you have my blessing. Go ahead, and the Lord will continue to bless you. Here's the application of that text. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God. Just as Aaron was. And then the contrast, as I already pointed out earlier, the contrast is the Lord Jesus Christ is also called by God. But look at the difference, will you? Here's the quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have become your father. And you note that this comes from Psalm 2, which is the enthronement speech of The king. Royalty. Continuing verse 6. And he says in another place you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And there's the priesthood. So he is a royal priest. Aaron could never say that. Aaron could say the Lord has called me. Jesus says yes, but I am king and priest forever. In a different Order. And I'm coming to that eventually when we talk about theology. Now, then he says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. This is the one and only time in the entire epistle that he talks about the life of Jesus. Note how he puts it. He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. When did Jesus speak loudly with tears? First in the Garden of Gethsemane and secondly from the cross, the seven words from the cross. I'm going into that in great detail later, so I skip this. He was heard because of his reverent submission. Christ Jesus offered himself
1: Voluntarily,
0: purposely. Okay, then once more there is a reference to Melchizedek. Note at the end of verse ten. He was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So now this is about what is it, the second or third time that we second time that we read about Melchizedek. And in chapter seven, of course, he's going to work that out in full. But he is saying to the people, Do you know how to interpret the priesthood of Melchizedek? Look, Jewish rabbis, you haven't done your homework. Here is a chunk of theology that you have not touched. And I'm going to do it for you and with you. Now, before he goes into Melchizedek, notice at the end of chapter 6 he mentions the name Melchizedek once more in verse 20. But now he has a word of exhortation. And he is rather sharp. He tells them, the readers, that they are slow to learn. (laughs) Well, if you want to uh, uh, make friends and influence people, you, you don't... Say those things. Uh, You know, when you're a pastor, and Sunday morning you open your mouth, and that's the only time in the whole week people see you, and now you're going to, excuse me for putting it this way, you're going to lambast them, and say you have been lazy, you have been slow to learn. Well, it may very well be that next Sunday morning you'll only have half the audience and people are staying away from you. And this is what the writer of Hebrews does. Look, Verse of all, in fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. And that's not enough. And he says, anyone who lives on milk is a baby. Oh, we put it nicely, you know, in our translation, being still an infant. But the Greek word actually is still a baby. Now, who wants to be called a baby? And then he says, he is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. Solid food is for the mature. Who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Now, let's hope we still have an audience left. This also tells us something about, hold on, about the date of the epistle. Because time has gone by and he is writing to people who should have been teachers. This also tells us something about where these people lived. Not in Jerusalem. That's where you find the apostles. That's where you find may I call it the hierarchy in the Christian church. We're talking about people in Rome, who received this epistle. Because at the end of the epistle you read, those who are with me from Italy greet you. In other words, I'm outside of Italy now and I'm sending this epistle to the people in Italy. And those around me are saying, send greetings, will you? We are no longer talking about first generation. We are talking about second generation Christians. Chapter 6. I am not going to going into the exegesis of chapter 6. I will do that later in my exegesis part. But one thing I would like to say. Notice. He uses the first person plural. <clears throat> In verses 1 and 3, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Read verse 3, and God permitting, we will do so. Now go on to verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear children, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. See? And now you have verse 4 through 6. And note the person and the number. It is impossible for those, third person plural, who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, third person plural, to be brought, brought back to repentance because to their loss, They're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. See, He makes a very clear distinction between us, you and I, people of God, over against they and them. They are the sinners, sinning against the Holy Spirit. Okay, I drop down now to verse 13. When God made His promise to Abraham, Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. And I still remember this one lady who was taking the course on Hebrews with me. And she said, when I came to that verse, Sir, tell me, does God give these same promises to you and me, today? Now think about it for a moment. You and I, now, today, being put at the same level as Abraham. Now Abraham, the father of believers, that staunch ally. Now, he receives promises from God. And the answer is, yes, he is also giving you and me the same promises. God's hand is never closed. His arm is never shortened. God is always true to his word. Continue reading with me. Verse 16. Men swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is is said and puts an end to all argument. Now, 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. There it is for you and me. He confirmed it with an oath. God did, did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Now, what are these two things? Well, simply this. God says, here is my word. Now, do you believe it? I'm trustworthy. Do you believe it, yes or no? He says, yes, Lord. Okay, that's number one. And he says, and then... On top of all that, I swear an oath which can never be repealed in saying, yes, it is true. And so by these two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have to have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us that we may be greatly encouraged read this epistle to the Hebrews and understand what God is saying He say I will never doubt God's word again no it is true ok then he has a few illustrations he talks about the inner sanctuary he talks about the anchor of the soul, he talks about Jesus entering on our behalf, all that, images. But he comes up, up again, with this remark. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 is all about Melchizedek. We already read this, so I can be rather quick here. The interpretation is king of righteousness, king of Salem, king of peace, without father or mother, having no genealogy. He is like the Son of God, priest forever. Now, then he says, Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder and the one who gives a tenth, a tithe, is lesser than the one who receives the tithe. So Melchizedek is greater than Father Abraham. Well, that was hard to swallow for a Jew, to say Melchizedek greater than Father Abraham. Yes, and then he continues and he says, verse 5, Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect the tents from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. Now, so how do you explain that? Why do you pay taxes? He said, this man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham. And he says, common sense will tell you, why well, he puts it differently, he says, without doubt the lesser person is blessed by the greater so it is Melchizedek the priest of God who blesses Abraham and the one who blesses is greater than the one who receives the blessing now then it becomes a bit um, almost embarrassing and again in translation we cover it up neatly I'm reading verse 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. <laughs> Neatly put, but it is rather embarrassing when you read it in the Greek. I'll leave that as is. Now, then he has to continue, and he says, now who was Jesus? Look, if you want to be straightforward, you have to say Jesus was born into the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Judah is the tribe of royal descent. Jesus was not born into the tribe of Levi and therefore you cannot call him a priest. You Follow the reasoning? Simple. Now how do you get out of it? He says, well, verse 12, there is a change of the priesthood. We're talking about a different priesthood, a priesthood that precedes the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. And you people have never paid attention to that priesthood. It's the forgotten area. Verse 14, he talks about the Lord descended from Judah in that, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Right on. Verse 15, what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of the regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. And don't say that. When the writer wrote about the year 85 AD, that he could say, well, down the street you'll find old Melchizedek, he's still around. Of course, that doesn't hold. What he's talking about is the institution of the priesthood called the Melchizedekian priesthood. And that is the priesthood into which the Lord Jesus Christ was born. Here it is, verse 17. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then again, as we saw earlier, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. What is that better hope? By way of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And that was introduced in the time of David by way of an oath where God speaks. Not David speaks, but God speaks. And God has sworn and will not change his mind and said... You are a priest for ever. So Jesus is not a priest in the order of Aaron but he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What I'm telling you here is that the writer of Hebrews was a top notch theologian. If I would have asked you Now, who in the New Testament is a top-notch theologian? Paul! And having plowed through Hebrews, I don't know how many times now I have to say, yes, Paul, and so is the writer of Hebrews. He knows his Old Testament inside out and he is saying to his audience, now, what have you people done with the priesthood of Melchizedek? What have you people done with a covenant that was given to us 600 years before Christ was born? For God says, by way of Jeremiah, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. What have you people done with it? Nothing. And then the writer of Hebrews said, now let me explain it for you and to you. And here it is. Okay, verse 23, chapter 7. Now there have been many of those priests since death presented them, prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. How many years do you think a priest served or a high priest served? Roughly speaking now. Give me some other idea. Yes, Frank. Oh, no, 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 no. No, a priest really had to be 30 years of age, maybe 25. 25 years, he would be 50, and that was it, no more. By that time, he was an old man. And a high priest first had to serve as priest. And then he became a high priest in probably 10, at the most 15 years. He was a high priest. And then he retired. Well, you say, how do you know? Will you please go through the ages of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah? You find them all in Kings and Chronicles. And how old do you think these kings became? In the 52nd years he passed away. In the 50th year he passed away. What? That was all? Yes. So a priest, or let's say a high priest, was in office for 10, 15 years, passed away, and then you have another consecration to the priesthood, and another consecration, and on and on it goes. Josephus somewhere gives us the number of high priests that served from the time of Aaron until his own day. I forget the exact number. It doesn't matter. Now, over against that, he says, look, we have the permanent priesthood of Jesus. Verse 24. And this permanent priest meets our every need. Verse 26. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed their sins for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. He's proven his point quite well. Now, that's the first point, that is the priesthood. And now we have to go on and talk about the covenant. So he has two major points. One is the priesthood of Melchizedek. The other is the covenant regarding Jeremiah chapter 31, the verses 31 and 34. And he's going to deal with that in chapter 8, where he quotes it at length. First, he talks about the tabernacle in the first part of chapter 8. He talks about Moses was supposed to build the tabernacle according to the pattern shown on the mountain. And note verse 6. I can't just skip verse 6 of chapter 8. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator Is superior to the old one and is founded on better promises. Now, Jesus is superior. The covenant is superior. He is the mediator because he has better promises. And then he continues. And he says, now, you people, have you ever looked at Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34? Written 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Here it is. Quote, verse 8, Anon. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now and he concludes by saying his own, his own observation by calling the covenant new and that's the word kynos the word kainos means new, alongside, and coming forth out of the old. So we talk about the old covenant, the Old Testament, and the Old Testament gave birth to the New Testament, which came forth out of, and that's a kainé diatheke, the kainos. He says the old one is obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging is, soon disappear. What he talks about obviously is the Old Testament rules and regulations. Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament. Now, when Jesus died on the cross on that Friday afternoon about three o'clock then there was an earthquake And the curtain in the temple separating the most holy place from the holy place that curtain split from top to bottom which means that anyone coming into the holy place could look and look into the most holy place was open to view. Now what do you think happened Sunday morning? No I'm not talking about Jesus rising from the dead. No I'm talking about the temple. And in my mind, I can picture this. And if I'm wrong, raise your hand and say, no, this is out. I can see a priest on a stepladder step uh, with a needle and thread and putting the two together again. Ah. Yes. And then God says, and I will be gracious to you people for 40 years. And exactly 40 years from now, that temple will be destroyed. The priesthood comes to an end. The city of Jerusalem becomes uninhabited. I am the Lord God. You see? Okay, I'll move on to verse 1 of chapter 9. The first covenant now. He's talking about the covenant of Jeremiah 31. And in chapter nine, and especially chapter 10, he brings it to conclusion. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. and he talks about the wilderness. He never talks about Jerusalem. He never talks about the temple. He's always talking about the people of Israel in the desert with the tabernacle. So the tabernacle has a lampstand a table, consecrated bread. And there's a holy place, and behind the curtain is the room called Most Holy Place, and that's the place where God dwells. Then you have a reference to the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant behind the curtain. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, the stone tablets of the covenant, all that, And above the ark were the cherubim. Note the plural. Cherubim. Don't say cherubims. It doesn't exist. Of the glory. Overshadowing the atonement cover. And he says, we can't go into all the details now. Yes, yeah. Now you can raise your hand and say, Sir, I found an error in scripture. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Because we have the golden altar of incense behind the curtain. Now, shouldn't it be in front of the curtain? Well, this can be explained by saying, yes, the priest took the coals and everything on the, what would you call that, the plate, the center, and carried them them behind the curtain. So, there is an explanation there, but I'm leaving that. Now, what he is saying is, (coughs) look what did the work of the high priest accomplish. Because year after year, in the month of October, you have the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur really came in the news in 1973 when the Egyptian army entered Israel and started a war right when they were celebrating Yom Kippur. And uh, I have to give the Israelis credit. They drove the Egyptians back across the river (laughs) Nile, <laughs> and were ready to enter Cairo, Egypt. <laughs> they had it coming. But anyway, I'll leave that as is. What we have to say is, or ask is, what did the Day of Atonement accomplish? Um, I'd like to go off on a tangent a moment, if you're with me. When I was in seminary in the 1950s, I was taught about grace and nature in Roman Catholicism. Grace and nature. And, okay, we have to learn it, grace and nature. Okay, And when the test comes, you know, grace and nature. That. But never, never fully understanding what was meant by grace and nature in the Roman Catholic Church. Well, first I met a Roman Catholic on the airplane. And we started talking. He was raised in the province of Quebec, Canada, as a Roman Catholic. But he married a wife who was a Protestant, went to the United Church of Canada. And he had gone through high school, grade school, high school in the Catholic Church and also a Catholic university and faithfully went to the Catholic Church on Sundays. And my question was, please tell me, in grade school, and in high school, and then on to university, were you ever taught the scriptures? And he said, no, never. He said, in church, were you taught the content of scripture? He said, no. And then I was asked, sometime later, I was asked to teach in Sao Paulo, Brazil, which is a predominantly Roman Catholic country. And the president of the seminary, where I taught, said something about grace and nature. I said, please explain that to me. And he said, okay. He says, here is a Roman Catholic businessman. And on Saturday, he goes to the priest and says, Father, I have sinned. I committed adultery on Monday. And on Tuesday, I was not honest in my business dealings. And on Wednesday, I swore. And, you know, I'm a sinner. Son, I forgive you. He says, and then the Roman Catholic... On Sunday, is living in grace. He's been forgiven, cleansed. He says, and then comes Monday morning. He's back into nature. And he sins, and he does this, and that, and that. Yeah. Don't they have any Bible knowledge? And the answer was, no. Sadly say, to say, sad to say, no. They don't have any Bible knowledge. It's grace when you go to the priest and say, Father, I have sinned. And then he forgives you. That's grace. Come Monday morning until Saturday, you're in nature. You do whatever you please. There's a distinction. Now, sir, since the temple has been destroyed, the year 70 A.D., the priesthood has come to an end, which has never happened because during the exile the priesthood continued. Sir, how do you explain forgiveness of sins today? And the answer probably is something like this Well, we have a, a sort of a mental forgiveness. I said, What do you base this on? This mental forgiveness? I don't know. I don't know. Now, now back to the Old Testament days. Year after year, in the month of October, there was the day of atonement. And then for the rest of the year, 364 days you could do whatever you wanted. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, was that effective? Read with me verse 14. I read verse 13 by way of contrast. The blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. And now 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God it's not on the outside it's the inside and that's exactly what Jesus did he has cleansed us internally and what a difference okay then we have the matter of the covenant, the mediator. I dropped these for the time being, pick them up probably later. Then one text that I must mention is verse 22. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and here it is. Put this in the memory bank, will you? Right here. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. All these liberal theologians who want to do away with that (coughs) blunt theology, here it is. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. I go on to chapter 10. Chapter 10 where he repeats a number of things. For example, Christ, that is, verse 24 of chapter 9, Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in the presence of God. Jesus, then, suffered once. and does not have to do it again, and again, and again. So he says in chapter 10, he says the second part of verse 1, For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeat endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. But those sacrifices, verse 3, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then he comes with that quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 and 7, 8. Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you repair, prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you are not pleased, I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. Now, what is the writer doing with that text? He explains it in verse 1. Here I am, I have come to do your will. That means he sets aside the first covenant to establish the second covenant. And by that will... We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Note in verse 12. When this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God as king, mind you, and as priest because he offered himself. Verse 14, Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's exactly what you find in chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Remember the very words. In verse 11 of chapter 2, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So the writer has come around full circle now. But the only thing he has to say yet is a word about that new covenant. So, he quotes Jeremiah 31 verse 33. Second time around now. First in chapter 8, now again in chapter 10. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on my minds. On their minds, excuse me. And he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Once for all, we... Don't have to come back year after year on the Day of Atonement. Jesus paid it all, as the hymn has it. Once for all, our sins are forgiven and will never be brought to mind again. God will not now, I remember what you did at that time. Yes, yes, I'm looking at you. You, uh-huh, that sin. No, never. God forgives and forgets. We can take a lesson from that when other people sin against us. Oh, yes, i readily shake hands. Okay, yeah, I'll forgive you, yes. Lo and behold, a week or two later, Remember what that fellow did to me? Is that forgiving? And the answer is no. I served this pastor way back in 1961. And I was as green as grass. I was just out of school. And he was an elder in the church and a young fellow by the name of Philip. I'm about 20 years of age. And boy, get at it. Well, I heard about it, so what I did, I first went to Philip, and I said, Philip, this is what I hear. Now, this is not the way a Christian should live, right? Yes, yes, Pastor, right, right, yeah, you're correct. I said, Philip, you know, what you should do is come to the man's Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock. Is that okay with you? Yes, 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 yes. I, 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 I shouldn't have never spoken those words to Ralph, the elder, no. Then I went to Ralph, and I said, Ralph, this is what I heard. Some angry words were spoken, and this is not how an elder should behave. No, no, Pastor, I know, no, no. I I shouldn't have done that, no. Uh, Ralph, would you mind coming to the man's at 7 o'clock on Tuesday? Yes, I'll be there, yes. Okay, so there they came. And I said, well, here we are, and are we able to forgive one another? Ralph stood up, yes, Philip, I forgive you. Yes, 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 I forgive you. And Philip, being the younger one, said, oh, thank you, Ralph, yeah, I forgive you too. So I offered a word of prayer, and I'm done. I brought two people together, yes. Would you know that within 10 days they were at it again? And I said to myself, what in the world went wrong? I thought I did my work. Until I realized, see, what Ralph, the elder, should have said to Philip is Philip, I hurt you deeply with my angry words. I'm so sorry. Philip, will you forgive me? And Philip should have said, Ralph, you know, I should have respected authority. You are the elder. And I had some nasty words for you. I hurt you. Ralph, please forgive me. They didn't. Ralph said, I forgive you. (laughs) But he did not say, will you please forgive me. And I, as a greenhorn pastor, I failed. Taught me a lesson. And I'm passing it on to you. Okay. We continue. That's the end of the first part of Hebrews. The second part consists of faith, chapter 11, hope, chapter 12, love, chapter 13. Note, he first talks about the new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. And now, again, may I have your Greek New Testament a moment? Thank you. Chapter 11, verse 19, in the Greek, reads as follows. Did I say 11? I meant 10. Chapter 10, verse 20. And you have the word... Kainos, actually the verb, kynizo, that is anew to us. And then you have a living way. A new and living way is opened up for us. The word new here is prosphaton. And that is literally translated Freshly killed. And who is freshly killed? Jesus Christ, the Son of God on Calvary's cross, prosphaton, And a living sacrifice, sozan, that is always alive. So you have a freshly killed and always living sacrifice, of the Lord Jesus Christ. How true. It is not just a historical fact, something that happened on Friday afternoon, April 7, the year 30, outside the city of Jerusalem. A person was crucified, done and over with, put him in the grave. No. The writer of Hebrews says, freshly slain for you today. It is a living sacrifice for you today learn the Greek it helps thank you again Okay, then we're going to deal tomorrow the exegesis part we're going to deal with verses 26 through 31 if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. We're going to deal with all that, so I'm going to drop it now. But that is once more the sin against the Holy Spirit. And then we already stopped for, for verse 32, and I don't want to do it again. We are talking here about the earlier days. And that does not go back to Emperor Claudius who expelled Jewish people from the city of Rome because they came right back. And I don't want to be (coughs) culturally insensitive. What I meant to say was this does not refer to the year 49 and then in 65 the person wrote the letter I would rather not. I would rather say, no, this happened during the Neronian persecutions because you read it here, all in great detail, publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other, other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. Now, good. I would say, that refers to the years 64 through 68. And now the writer in the 80s, mid-80s, is writing his epistle and he's saying, do you remember those earlier days of hardship? And the answer is yes. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated, in part or in whole, for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.